Feel free to have a seat. You know, as we, as we come together for Christmas, we, we all are intimately acquainted with the story. I mean, uh, most of these children, or some of them anyway, if you were to get them up on the stage and ask them, well, tell me what happens, tell me who is all there, they would likely walk over to this manger scene and they'd begin to describe who does what and, and who came from where and, and who this baby in the middle is. You know, but as we look at this story that we've heard so many times, that we've all taken in over and over and over again, there's a question that remains at the heart of all of it. You see, it does us no good to be able to describe the characters. It does us no good to simply be able to tell somebody something about who these characters are gathered here in the nativity scene in front of our church. Because at the heart of all of this, lies the question of how do you approach Jesus? How do you approach and how do you respond to the person of Jesus? Now we're going to be looking today in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and that's where we're going to focus in on. And this is the familiar passage for most of you. This is the accounting of the wise men who have come from far to see Jesus. But before we zoom in on 2, 1 through 12, we need to zoom back out. We need to give ourselves some context so we can understand the importance of what Matthew's doing here. You see, as we open up the book of Matthew, we see that Matthew chose to do something radically different with his gospel than the other gospels. And the gospel that Matthew offers us here, he sets in, and Matthew is preoccupied with this idea of pointing out the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. And so he opens up to the genealogy, and you'll, you'll notice if you read down through there, it's the father of so-and-so is so-and-so, and the father of so-and-so is so-and-so. But when he, opens his up, when he opens it up, in verse 1, what does he write? He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Stop. You see, when he opens up this book, he does something that he wants people to be able to draw in and connect there's been this huge gap of time. There's been this, this gap of time from the exile. There's been another gap of time from the prophesying of Malachi. And Matthew writes, he says, hey, look. This Jesus that has showed up, he's not like these other characters that have come along and have been a, very good at self-promoting. And he ties him into two key characters in Jewish heritage. He, sees, he says he's of the line of David. Matthew's standing on on a box and jumping up and down and saying, this Jesus that I'm writing about is the Messiah. He says, you know, we've waited for this warrior king that would come, this one who would bring peace, this one who would meet all the requirements for the prophecy, meet it down over time. It's him, it's Jesus. He's in the line of David. He says, okay, I, I can tell you need a little bit more convincing. Let me give you another point of his pedigree. He says, I'm going to take him all the way back to the beginning. He says in Abraham the prophecy was made that in Jesus or then that promise was made to Abraham that his descendants would fill the earth that in him he would be a blessing to those around him. And Jesus is going to do that in a radical way. Jesus is going to make Abraham's fulfillment look like a mere shadow. Jesus is the perfection of all those things spoken to David. Jesus is the perfection of all those things spoken to Abraham. 
And we see Matthew writes it out, and in verse 16 he says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus is born, is called the Christ. He says, guys, he's the Messiah. He's the one who has come to take away all our woes. He is the one who has come to bring peace. He is the anointed one, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He's the Messiah. He puts an exclamation point on who Jesus is. And then Matthew moves on, and he gives us an interesting look at the birth. You'll notice if you're intimately acquainted with the Gospel of Luke, that Luke spends a whole lot more time talking about how the birth came to be and, and, the, and the backstory of that. And he gets Mary's side of the story, but, but Matthew puts forward Joseph's side. And he says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Essentially, hey, this is how it happened. This is how we came to have Jesus. He said, when mother is Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, these, these young couple, this young couple had come, to get, to come together. Mary's a teenager. Joseph's likely in his 20s or 30s. They had come together, and they'd been committed to marry one another. Now, we do that, and we call it being engaged, right? But we see engagements break off all the time, high-class engagements in, in, you know, in Hollywood and whatnot, that people spend millions of dollars on a ring, millions of dollars on a party to celebrate the fact that they're engaged. They live together for two or three years, and they say, you know what, it wasn't for us. I'm keeping the ring, but the engagement's off. But it's a radically different concept. The families get together, they work it out. This couple is promised to one another. They haven't consummated the marriage yet, but they're, they're promised to one another for this period of time. And during this period of promise, prior to their wedding day, Joseph figures out that something is wrong. Mary's with child. I mean, that's a, that's a big issue for him. And so it says in the text that Joseph, being a just man, decided he didn't want to give her any shame, that he would just send her away quietly. We read in the providence of God that God sent an angel and spoke to Joseph. In verse 19, we read that Joseph, her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived from her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until after she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. You see in the middle of that, that prophecy that's spoken there by Isaiah is, is, is uttered 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. 700 years in the past, God is at work orchestrating the events of history to lead to this one point when this insignificant girl from a backwater town would supernaturally get pregnant. And through that great work of God, he would bring in redemption to all. And you'll know that if you flip over to Luke 2, you can read about the shepherds being visited by the angels we've just heard, and they come down and they see the baby born. But where our passage picks up in Matthew 2... There's elapsed a great period of time, probably one to two years from the end of the baby being born to the beginning of chapter 2, because it had to allow time for the Magi to travel this great distance. And when we open up chapter 2, we see that now after Jesus had been born in Jerusalem of Judea, 
In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And the chief chief priests and scribes, they told him in verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, as we open this up, we see that these wise men have traveled from the east, that they have made their way to Jerusalem, the capital city, and they are milling about in the marketplace, essentially. I mean, there's enough of them that they're milling around and they're talking to people and they're hobnobbing with people and saying, hey, hey, you guys are obviously very excited because this king has been born, right? And they're like, I don't, who are you? You're like the fifth person that's asked me about this king. I've never even heard of him. The only king we have is Herod. And, and they say, well, maybe we keep just talking to uninformed people. And so they keep spreading around. They keep bumping into people in the marketplace saying, hey, we're here in Bethlehem. We're, we're here in Jerusalem. Where's the king? Well, man, eventually this message has made its way all over the marketplace. It makes itself to the king. It makes itself all the way up to Herod. And Herod starts hearing this message, and he sends for these guys that are spreading this message. They keep asking these questions that by this point are really starting to irritate Herod. And so the Magi come, and and it comes in, and we see in the text that that Herod is not a fan of what they've been asking. They've been asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And we see in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. See, Herod is not a nice guy. Herod, Caesar Augustus, said it was better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Herod is a a maniac with an immense amount of power. The Roman Senate has made him king of the Jews, and he can do pretty much whatever he wants to do. He can do anything he wants to do, and there are times where he gets rid of his family because he's afraid they're going to try and take over. He's changing wives. I mean, he is just wild and drunk with power. And when Herod hears that there's this other king that's to be born, he calls the Magi and he says, hey, let's talk. And the text tells us that Herod was troubled. You see, Herod's somebody who looked at this situation and he heard about a potential king that would be born, and he knew that if another king came on the scene, that it would threaten his rule. You see, today as we sit here, there's some of us who, in the reflection of Herod, see ourselves. That we've heard of this great king that has been born. We've, we might have even come to church Christmas after Christmas, and we've sung these songs, and we've, we've had, bought the bumper sticker that says, Don't take Christ out of Christmas. But when it comes to stepping down for being king of our own domain, when it comes to the point of surrendering our will and releasing our kingdom to him, we're troubled. And we don't want anything to do with him. You see, the next thing we see is that it says all of Jerusalem was troubled as well. 
You see, these were people that were used to living under a tyrant, used to living under somebody who was just so given to angry mood swings that, that they, they knew that if Herod got mad, man, it was going to be bad. Because we've all heard the phrase that when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And that was no more true than it was with Herod. When Herod ain't happy, mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. It rains downhill. You see in them, some of us again see our reflection. Not that we fear of the tyrant king, but we're so afraid of what might be, of, of what might have to change in our lives, of what inconveniences it might bring us if we were to even inquire about this king. If we were even to pursue the course of trying to figure out what this king might be about, we're afraid it might be an inconvenience. It might be something that would trouble us. So some of us today see that same thing. We're so worried about what it might cost us, what we potentially might have to change in our lifestyles, that we hold out our arm with Jesus and we say, I just, I just can't. I don't know why I just can't. But you see, for me, the saddest group is when we look at the scribes and the chief priests. These guys are charged with, with communicating the text. These guys are charged with preserving the text. These guys are charged with interpreting it for everybody. And when Herod calls them in, he says, hey, look, these guys from the east have arrived. They've said, they've said that this king is born. Where would it be? And they bust out the scrolls, and they roll them out, and these guys are so puffed up, and they say, ha, Micah 5-2, baby. And they read it to him, and they say, oh, you Bethlehem, the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, there's no pause, there's no hesitation. When the question is, poised to them, is posed to them, where's the king? They tell him he's in Bethlehem. You see, but for some of us, we see in the response, we see in the response of the chief, chief priests and scribes, those that are merely satisfied, satisfied knowing who Jesus is. You see, they have all of this intimate knowledge. They're able to, to quote chapter and verse. They've been students of the word their entire lives. They're seen as authorities in this setting. And some of us today have been in church our entire lives. We are intimately acquainted with the story. We are intimately acquainted with, with all the facts and details of who Jesus is. And that's enough for us. We look at the call to go and to give our lives over to Jesus and we say, I'm really just satisfied with knowing. You see, gathered in this room together, we see a variety of people and a variety of responses to Jesus. We see those who are so consumed with controlling their own destiny, so, con so consumed with being able to control every detail of their lives, that they, like Herod, say, my kingdom will not be threatened. I will not follow this king. We see others who, like all of Jerusalem, hear about Jesus and they say, look, I'm not really sure what it's going to cost me, but if it costs me anything, it's too much. I will not go find out about Jesus. And then lastly, we see those of us that have grown up in the church that know all about Jesus. But we've never given our lives to a full commitment of honoring and following him. So the question that hangs in the air for us is how will you respond to Jesus?
straight out of left field. We didn't see them coming. 
But these magi have arrived. These people that, by all accounts, should have no part in this, this story. You see, but in the providence of God during the Babylonian exile, when they're way over in Persia, they begin collecting the documents that the Israelites highly treasured and highly valued, and they kept a portion of at least one scroll that references star rising and a king being born. And they're so captivated with this message that even as they sat there and studied star charts and studied the text that they saw that, and they said, man, that's over in this foreign country, and it's going to take a great deal of money, it's going to take a great deal of time. And they packed everything up. And they gathered all the good and expensive stuff they could find, and they abandoned everything, and they headed out on this journey. And they likely encountered cold nights, cold days, empty stomachs, threats from those people that would seek to endanger them as they carried precious cargo across this vast distance. And man, they found themselves in the capital city, expecting it to be a buzz with the news of what had happened a year to two prior. That this new king was born, that life was going to change, that this great expectation that was over a thousand years in the making, had finally come to fruition, but they find a people clueless, they find a people disengaged, and then they find a rulership threatened. And Herod calls them in, and he talks to them, and he, he's, he's probing them about when they first saw the star, and he calls in the experts, and he asks them to weigh in on the situation and where it might be, and they find out that all they need to do is travel five more miles down the road, and they're going to find themselves in Bethlehem. So when we pick back up the text, Herod tells them, he says that, hey, look, go to Bethlehem, search for the child, and when you found him, man, send me, a, send me a line. Let me know, too, so that I can come and worship the child. You'll remember that Herod doesn't have anything good that he's waiting to. He's not truly waiting to go and worship the king, but that Herod, who feels threatened, wants to go and put an end to this king. But God in His providence is preserving all. God in His providence is preserving the Messiah. Wow, Messiah. It's a hard word to say, apparently. And then as, the, as they head out, as they leave Herod, it says in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You see, God had placed this light in the sky and had led them on this journey for one and a half to two years. God had placed this, this celestial body in the sky and had directed their footsteps, directed their paths. And when they saw the visible representation of God's will in their lives, when they saw that star hung in the sky, they rejoiced because they saw God at work. And then verse, verse 11, we read that the, the culmination of this great trip, the end of this great journey is realized that they walk into the house. They see the child with Mary, his mother. They fall down and worship. You see, they, they, it's not just that they wanted to go and be informed. It's not just that they wanted to go and, and satisfy some curiosity. of I wonder if these things are written all these hundreds of years ago have any truth, any validity. Won't that be fun to go? Let's, let's just go see. Let's grab as many people as we can. Let's, let's take a lot of money with us. Let's have a great expense so that we can satisfy our curiosity. See, it's none of those things. It's the fact that when they get there and they walk into the house, they fall down before the king. 
They cry out in worship. And then they pull out the best that their land had to offer. And they extend to this child king gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All the things that were highly valued and treasured in Persia. You see, some of us, in the reflection of these three wise men, see ourselves. That we've seen Jesus. That we've abandoned everything familiar. That we've let go of this hold on our lives. That we've given the most precious thing that we have to offer. And in the face of this Holy One, it's nothing but filthy rags. That we have fallen at the feet of one who would be king. That we have fallen at the one who is worthy to be king. And we've worshipped him. You see, Jesus calls us all to come and see him. But some of us, in the reflection of Herod, are so threatened that our life would change, or so threatened that our kingdoms would be stripped away, and we would rather be king of an empty castle than to go and to worship the king. And others of us, having heard of Jesus, are so worried that that something might have to change for us, that our lifestyle might have to change, that it might affect the way that we live. We're just not willing to do that. We recognize with Jerusalem. But man, the great sadness is that some of us have grown up in church. We've spent our whole life doing Bible drills and doing church. And we come from a generation and a lineage of people that have done church well. They have given to the church. They have sacrificed the church. But they have never worshipped the king. You see, as we look at the Magi, we get a response. We get an application for how we should all follow Jesus. We can't follow him by keeping him at arm's length, but we can only follow him as we surrender all. That as we give up our own control in our lives, and we turn, and we fall down at the feet of one who would be king, and we cry out in worship and say, save me. Let me ask you to stand as we enter to this time of of response. You see, to follow Jesus is to yield our lives in response to him. And Jesus stands and he calls and he, and he beckons and he asks us to come and to follow him. And so today, even as we celebrate the birth of the king, we recognize that the king came and he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he yielded up his life on a Roman cross to pay for our sins. But man, that's not the end. The good news continues in that Jesus, who was once in the grave, rose three days later and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high and offers to us and extends to us forgiveness before God. As we reflect upon this, as we reflect upon the truth of of Scripture, how would God have you to respond today? Perhaps God is calling you today, and finally, after years of yielding and years of refusal to move, you're finally ready to step down off the throne and allow the king to take his proper place as the king of your life. As the Spirit leads, I pray that you would respond.